You're listening to The Bunker New York, live on RBMA Radio. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick. We're here today with special guest L.A. Foray, also known as Ambivalent. And we're going to get right into the mix with him. He'll be joining us for an interview later on. But right now, let's get into it with L.A. Foray. Thank you. 
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. We've been in the mix with LA4A, also known as, perhaps better known as, Ambivalent. I don't know these days. Depends on who you're asking. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, it's sort you- of funny. I have two techno aliases, and I often find that some people have no idea of the like they they, they feel like sub, such separate worlds to some people it's really interesting to me sometimes well you're i was just looking on resident advisor and it looks like you finally are getting some bookings as la4a yeah because i remember when you played the bunker maybe a couple years ago i was like wow the project's doing so great you might, you're playing all the time and you're like i've only played berghain in the bunker yeah. as la4a yeah. <laughs> nobody books this project <laughs> nobody cares so it seems like that's perhaps there's been some shift there. It's getting more. Yeah, I think there's. I think now the the alias kind of got established as being um, an entity to itself as a as a bookable DJ act. You know, um, I think that I think that's what happened. I, I don't know. I mean, it's always so hard to know as as the person making the music and and doing the DJ sets what rationale people are using to pick up things or not pick up things so i just or, kinda, or like why with. somebody's booking you sometimes you you show up at a gig and you yeah. figure out the promoter or club's motivation for booking you is something like completely different than you could have imagined and their expectations too because i, I find that some people have booked la4a because they see that the alias gets that the, the project gets booked at Berghain. And so they think that I'm going to come in and play any club as if that club is Berghain on a Sunday afternoon or something. And um, and that's not always how I feel like playing or, or what this project is necessarily about either. So LA4A is, you're getting booked downstairs at Berghain, not upstairs at Hanover. Correct. Interesting. The look on your face <laughs> tells me that you have... <laughs> well, I would put opinion. it in, I would put it upstairs, but... I think... Um, the club has their idea of um, what works where, and I, when I play there, I play what I think is the fit for the room as where that intersects with the project. And the project is very, you know, as you can tell, it's very, you know, it's very acid heavy and very kind of back at the sort of roots of techno that sort of inspire me. And um, so that's what I focus on. But yeah, I mean, the, production-wise, the most of the stuff that the the project has put out has been like 120 BPM Chicago Acid House. Yeah, know? it makes. Yeah, but I there's mean, also I, been some really fast electro, and there is actually a lot of much faster electro coming under Alias. Yeah, I mean, I know you're perfectly capable of playing on either floor, but I would put Ambivalent downstairs and LA4A upstairs. But also, the first couple times I got booked there, I played upstairs and i'm not really known for playing that kind of music so i don't i don't always know what the logic is but it's it's always a blast to play there on either floor so who yeah it always works and i think that they kind of rely on i think they book djs that they know they can count on to make it work wherever they put them and yeah they don't necessarily give you like a, a deep explanation as to why you are in the room you're in or the time that you're on you just kind of go with it and you know I've, I've had a great time. I had great, great times playing there. I really love it. Yeah. So when you get booked as LA4A versus Ambivalent, is that a does that in and of itself like lead to a different approach to your sets, or is it still it's basically always Kevin McHugh playing, and you're I mean you're going to show up and play what makes sense for the situation? Um, 
there's that aspect. I mean, I'm obviously not going to like slam in something that's totally inappropriate at the moment that I'm booked. But yeah, I have I have pretty distinct um, approaches to each set, and you know the the stuff that I play as LA4A tends to be stuff that kind of um, captures or or or, or is the track, you know, is made up of the tracks that I really got inspired by you know very early on or, or tracks that have kind of an older classic feel whether it's disco like I was playing earlier or Italo or Electro or Acid and it doesn't have to be old I don't exclusively play old stuff I just play stuff that has a similar kind of mentality and focus to where I see LA4 going and of course it's subjective sometimes there are tracks that I play in both sets but generally they're they're pretty distinct I don't think I think if you listen to LA4A sets and ambivalent sets, you can tell pretty clearly what the differences are. Right. So talking about early influences, when I mean, when did you first get into this music? Was it when you moved to New York or before you moved to New York? It was before. Um, when I I grew up in Washington, D.C., and there was a club. There were, there were a couple of clubs there that were really formative for me. One is called Tracks in Southeast, which is where all the kind of big clubs were. Um, and Trax was a place where um, you would have like people like Scott Henry in the main room, um, and then they had a, a side room that had industrial EBM kind of stuff, like Nitzareb and Ministry, Old Ministry, and stuff like that. And so a friend of mine from high school would DJ in that side room, and I'd go to hear him play there, and then occasionally sneak over to the other room and start hearing that so that was probably like 92 I was going to those things and then living in Baltimore there were a lot of rave clubs or or warehouses that I would go to in Baltimore so that was sort of where I first got into this music and by the time I moved to New York in 1996 I I was pretty fully into it buying 12 inches and you know following DJs and stuff like that and that's when I started booking stuff for creative time right is that is that what brought you to new york the job with creative time or did you just move to new york and then i was actually i was still i i dropped out of art school when i left baltimore and i moved to london for a like i got into some art history program there that i i spent a semester there and that was where i learned to dj and then got into nyu to like finish my last two years of school so I moved to New York in 96 to finish school in, at NYU, and that was when I got an internship at Creative Time. And within like two weeks of starting there, they were like, you seem to know a lot about this stuff. Why don't you help us program our music series? And that was when, it, so I was still in college when I was actually booking the, the series for Creative Time. So for, for people who don't know, because um, especially a lot of people newer to New York have no idea. Can you explain what Creative Time was and what you did there? Yeah, um, Creative Time is um, the oldest, I think the oldest, um, public arts organization in New York City. And their mission is to put on um, work by contemporary artists. It's interdisciplinary, but um, contemporary artists in public spaces. And so starting in 1983, they started, um, they got permission to use the, a space called the Brooklyn Bridge Anchorage, which is actually a, um, a big cavernous brick underground space inside the base of the Brooklyn Bridge in Brooklyn, on the Brooklyn side. And, um, and so for 
18 years straight. Every summer they would do installations by um, emerging artists in this giant space. And um, when I started working with them, they had just done their first music series to coincide with the exhibition. And then I started helping them book electronic musicians because I was like, hey guys, you know, having people with guitars is kind of, you know, it's 1996. I mean, really, like, don't shouldn't we book some DJs or something? And yeah, <laughs> I, th <laughs> I thought I was really like kind of enlightening them on something there, <laughs> but but obviously they knew what they were doing, and and so they they let me kind of start calling up artists and labels that I liked and invite them to come in and do stuff and. So I started doing that until that that lasted until 2001, um, because our last summer doing it, 2001. Um, then September 11th happened, and yeah, doing things in in public spaces, large gatherings <laughs> in the base of the Brooklyn Bridge was no longer. I mean, the funny thing is, is like, of course, you know, the bridge is a it's a national landmark, right? You can't, you know, it's obviously the one of the most important pieces of architecture in American history. But the walls of that space, I mean, you've been there, the walls yeah. of that space were 17 feet thick of solid brick. Even if you drove a tractor trailer into it full of dynamite, you'd probably shake the dust off the walls. That's about wow. all you would do. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's an immense space. Yeah. It's, and it's sonically challenging, I'm sure. <laughs> we, uh, we, we wrestled with that for a few years, yeah. Yeah. What was the year, do you remember when... Uh, when Leo Villarreal had the piece on the ceiling, and I think that was the year Zip played. It was definitely the year Thomas Brinkman played. Yep, that actually, was a, that was a really I I had been going for years, but that was a really big year for me at the the music in the Anchorage series because I just remember at that time what year was that? That was two thousand one. That was the last summer, and actually yeah. Zip and Brinkman played on the same show. Yeah, there just wasn't a lot of I don't know what you want to call it left field, more experimental not straight techno happening in New York and the series that year had a lot of that so it was very exciting that was see. really that was really my focus at that time I mean that was what I was really into you know for the years leading up to that and I was just not I mean I, I have to acknowledge it now it's maybe not cool to admit it but I was not into Twilo or um, a lot of the big commercial dance clubs in New York. I was really into techno, but I didn't find that the music that I was interested in was getting put on there. And so I had this opportunity to book really cool, but to, to book what I want, wanted and found interesting. And I thought Perlon and, you know, uh, all the stuff coming out of Frankfurt and Berlin was really exciting to me. And so I got to do that. So yeah, same. I mean, there Twilo would do a few times a year. Uh, Jeff Mills or Richie Houghton would play, right. and then Sven Vaith had his residency where he would book really cool, he actually booked uh, Sammy D and Zip once and would book really cool acts to play. But then most of Twilo and what was happening in clubs in general in New York in that era was just a lot of the Euro, trance, progressive house, it I mean, really wasn't for me. And that music now, listening listening back to a lot of what was getting played then, I, I find that maybe I turned my nose up at music that was really good and interesting. It's just that I was more interested in, obviously, the stuff that was, like you just said, left field. I, I was interested in the stuff that was sort of off the beaten path um, and felt like that was the stuff that needed... Uh, you know, a nonprofit arts organization to get behind it because Sasha and Digweed were doing just fine. Yeah, and it was, I mean, uh, we were both 
eventually doing other parties after that and it was just nearly impossible to bring those artists to the states then especially when they needed work permits and flights and there was no touring structure so yeah it really did need that kind of support to get it going i think um and it was cool to be able to do that i mean it was cool to be a part of it and i met a lot of amazing people yourself included i think we met around the time that you were working for the agriculture yeah an open air and for open Ma- air. magda's party right i think it was this 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 has come up on a couple of shows i always forget what year that was i feel like it was Either but just think, after 9-11 when Magda did Jelly yeah, Weave? That, no, that was 2002 because she wasn't, she wasn't in New York until, I think, 2002. But, but you and I met before that because I believe Mike Wolf from the Polar Bear Club introduced me to you when you were just starting the parties that became the bunker. Right. And, and I knew, and I think also you and I might have met, if it weren't that moment it was somewhere connected through dj olive because we we did a lot with olive and we and those guys yeah i think that that all happened i got to new york in 97 and i think the big thing that we did there we tm was before i got to new york just before okay and i was pretty involved in that scene that scene of music when i got here Mm mm-hmm um, so after the creative time thing, eventually you started the, was the party called Micro Mini or the party was called the yeah. Nove? No, the, there were two parties. One was called Micro Mini, which was some idea that I had that I thought was clever of melding <laughs> micro house and minimal techno. And my thing was that I was just so tired of how dry all the, it was just so nerdy and dry. And I was like, dude, this music is sexy and fun. And if like, if you don't make it this nerd fest and like, don't be so, you know, whatever, uh, polished about it, this can be really fun stuff. And so I kind of tried to put a, a different spin on it and having it at a club like Filter 14, where there was this history of parties like mother and and all of these sort of like drag parties and gay parties and there was just a a much sort of grittier sexier vibe to doing something in the meatpacking district at that time i mean no one would think that the meatpacking district is gritty now but back back then in 2002 it was like a pretty wild and fun place to party and that club in particular had a killer sound system and a great vibe and it was really underground and it was it was a perfect fit um and then ultimately, back tune and the cooler. I mean, you right. hung out in the in that area a lot then. And actually, when you played Moscow Disco, I remember. I think one of the very first Magda sets I heard was when she played. What was Victor's party? Tronic treatment yeah. on a Monday night. And she At played. Back-tune. She played. Yeah, she played Moscow Disco at the end of her set, and people just oh. went crazy. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I always kind of think of that moment when I when I think of that, hear that track. Yeah. Um, a lot of memories with that track, obviously, yeah. for, for everybody who listens to it. So then there there was that whole era when, well, Richie Hutton, in quotation marks, lived in New York. <laughs> I mean, his, his stuff was in that apartment, and Magda lived there, and I feel like that's really, that was around the time that the Minus label and sound kind of gelled, because a lot of the artists, Troy Pierce, Magda, yourself, Heartthrob, Everybody was kind of hanging out in New York, yeah. going to Gel and Weave, the parties on Canal Street. Um, is that, I guess, when you connected with that whole crew and 
somehow ultimately ended up releasing on the label, the Minus label? Um, I got connected with Rich because uh, because of the work I was doing at the Anchorage and because I'd been reaching out to get him to play there for a while. And in fact, he would he had been trying to come to play to play at an illegal party in that space um, before I had started working with Creative Time and gotten kicked out of the U.S. at that time because he was trying to come in without a visa or something. And that was the time he got busted and right. banned for a while. Yeah, so he was for that party. He was trying to come to play at the Anchorage, and so I was trying to get him to come back and play at the Anchorage under legit auspices. Um, and that, um, that, that took a while, but in the process he and I met and shared a lot of common interests musically and artistically. And so, um, and then separately, I just happened to meet, um, heartthrob Jesse, um, in, uh, in, in another context when I was at an art world event, cause he was doing PR in the art world at that time. And we became friends and around, it was really all like within the space of like a couple weeks I met all of those guys either through rich or through jesse and then it turned out that some of that posse was living on my street up the block and so it just became this yeah there was a, a very tight mix of people around that time um and then was are you okay your first record on minus uh, it was my first record on minus but it wasn't my first record it was um uh i I made a I made an EP for my friend Camille's label. Oh yeah, um, I remember that one. And that was um, let's see, that was yeah, that was on Clink, and that was in 2006. Um, and yeah, and then really like round while I was waiting for that to come out, I made this other track gave it to rich and it, it was are you okay and and that became a, a very successful record and kind of took off and and gave me a chance to give music a full-time push Not so is that where you that. you probably weren't really touring before that record came out no and then, and then did it start happening i mean i don't even i don't remember this but i imagine it probably started happening pretty quickly after that came out and you got a booking agent and all that or did it take some time it took some time i mean i was i was working a job at an art advertising agency and i was there for almost a full year after um are you okay came out but what i was doing was you know flying out on thursday night like I'd take a day off of work for a Friday and fly out and do Thursday night. I'd fly to Europe and do Friday and Saturday and then red eye back Sunday night or get back, you know, late Sunday night, wake up in the morning and work, you know, because in advertising also you work crazy hours. So I would work 70 hours during the week and then get back on a plane on the weekend and yeah, that's in, that's in, I've seen so many of my friends do that. Mike Servito, the Black Madonna, Ryan Elliott. I I honestly don't know how you all did that. You I can't, can't even imagine those what those Mondays must have been like. There's no alternative. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's like this is the thing. It's like this phone call is coming now and it's not coming again. So you do it or you just you know, you just let go of that dream. And of course anybody who's spent their life in yeah. this music, they they take that call and they do whatever they can to make it happen, come hell or high water. Yeah, and it's I guess it's very I mean everybody I mentioned yourself included seems to have 
to pick the right moment to let go of their other job and move forward with a music career, but that's got to be a pretty terrifying decision to make. <laughs> to be honest with you, I sometimes wonder if it was the right time. Sometimes I wonder if I should have spent more time developing as an artist before I was ready to go on the road. Um, obviously, the attention was there and the readiness on the part of the industry was there, but my mental and creative readiness to go and stand in front of people and perform, I just sort of, I was thrown into it. I had to, I had to yeah. get better on the way, you know? Yeah, I mean, your biggest gig before that was probably Cielo or at Robots or something like that. <laughs> My biggest gigs were the ones where I was the promoter and I booked <laughs> right, myself to open. Right. That was basically, that was how I got started. That was how I learned. And, you know, I wasn't I wasn't good. I'll be, yeah. I'll be really honest. Like, I wasn't good enough to play in front of the crowds that I was playing for and one of the adaptations was to do a live set because my productions were really popular and my, right. my DJ sets were not as strong as they could be um, but I hated doing live sets and um, and as soon as I was capable of switching out I, I did because I, I really felt like this is why I'm doing this I'm DJing you know I'm I'm making this music so that I can DJ and so that I can be in clubs and have that experience Why did you hate the live sets? Um, imagine do you ever like hear your own voice on an answering machine or on the radio or something yeah and it doesn't sound like you or it just it just kind of like makes your skin crawl because you're yeah. like oh who is that person do i sound like that yeah imagine doing that you know twice a week for, <laughs> for weeks on end you know and and that's the thing is that live sets were to a certain degree limiting because of the way that it was difficult for me to um it was difficult for me to um, hold on a second. I'm just going to start this over. Um, <laughs> I, it, it was difficult for me to um, to make music while I was traveling and working 70 hours a week, and you know I was trying to balance all of these things and be ready to play in clubs. And um, and you know I was I was also I was annoyed because I was I'm, I saw myself as a DJ and wanted to DJ and and felt like I was in situations where my set didn't fit the context of what I was put into and I didn't have the option to adapt that. Whereas as a DJ, you can be like, oh, right. they want this, I'll play that for two hours or for an hour and then bring them around to where I want to be. When you have a live set, you have what you have. You know, yeah. you can't just speed it up and make it fit that context. It just doesn't always work that way. Yeah. Um, so you did a lot of touring with Minus, went around with Rich, and then... I mean, at what at what point did that kind of the minus stage end and Delft launch? Is that I mean, is that how you see it? Like one thing and then the next, or was there a transition? Is the transition happened a lot earlier than that? I mean, I was I was really unhappy at minus for a long time, and close friends knew that, but not many other people did. Right. Um, I was pretty dissatisfied with a lot of what was going on, but I. I kind of agreed to this exclusive, all-in kind of package where basically everything that I was doing was all boxed into what was there, and it was hard to um, it was hard to get out. Yeah, I can. I mean, I remember as a close friend your frustration where you would be like, "I made a new album and I submitted it to Minus. They don't want to put it out. I can't give it to anybody else." Right. So. And, and I That's... wanted to, you know, and I was, pl 
playing quite differently from I think a lot of the a lot of the other artists on the label and the label's identity was so monolithic that no matter what I did I was seen as I was seen through that filter and so there wasn't really a whole lot of ways that I could adapt my own identity without being separate from it completely and so a lot of the stuff that I was making during a time where I felt like I could not um, really get out what I wanted to get out was stuff that you know came out in 2013 and one of those things was the LA foray project which I just decided you know what I'm hearing from all of these people that when they listen to my music they just hear minus and that just means that the filter and the, the expectation is so specific there so what I'm gonna do is just go and um, release this thing and not tell anybody what it is and what was exciting to me was to find out that friends of ours like Servito and you and other people were hearing it and liking it and not knowing it was me and that was the most fulfilling yeah. thing. Yeah, I didn't know it was you when I first heard it and Servito and I were playing it all the time and I mean I think I think it actually still says on the Discogs page that it's a Dutch label. <laughs> <laughs> that which is funny because you know like I I you know for me Delft was always like a reference to you know this beautiful blue and white porcelain that sort of I thought was a, a graphic um, conceit more than like a reference to a town but um, and then distributing it through a Dutch distributor yeah. everyone just sort of made and I was fine with people making those assumptions it wasn't me projecting it I wasn't yeah you didn't say anything you just yeah, put out the record I just put out the record and I also didn't hide it from being me if anybody asked I said it, you know, I would acknowledge it, but I wasn't out there like on social media, like, yo guys, check this out. Like I was just let yeah. it grow and be its own thing until it got to a point where it felt like it would be pretentious to try it. I, it felt like I was going to have to do some, you know, DJing in a mask or something kind of moves that, uh, that I wasn't ready to do or try to hide it. And I felt like hiding it was worse than just being open about it. So I just started acknowledging that it was me and yeah. And then the label just kept growing. And it's it's kept going. I'm, I'm really happy about that. I feel really lucky. Yeah, so it's been like three, four years now of Delft. Yep. Um, you finally, you've finally started putting things out digitally now, too? Yeah, and Bandcamp. After you told yeah. me for years <laughs> that I should do it, I finally, I finally <laughs> acquiesced. And, I mean, you know, the Bandcamp thing and the digital thing were very much like me realizing that holding out on them was not getting people to buy more vinyl they just want what they want and you make it available for them or you don't but you can't you can't persuade people to buy vinyl because the digital is not available because the digital is available whether you make it available or not yeah. so why not have people buy it directly from the label and support the artists and the label and all of that stuff they're completely different markets too i think i mean i heard my digital distributors told me this for a while before I really started believing them, but I just yeah. don't think people are like, oh man, this one's vinyl only. I have to buy the vinyl. I think that way, but I don't think I'm I, like it, other people. It, yeah, it's you're like the exception that proves the rule. There's, there's right. of course, plenty of people, especially more serious DJs, buying things on vinyl, ripping them digitally, but I think most people are kind of one or the other these days the irony is is that the people who are making the most money djing are the ones who are buying the least amount of vinyl yeah which is always disappointing <clears throat> i can understand you know i because i've been there i've been in that situation where you're traveling constantly and it's hard to keep up and you get promos in your inbox full of great stuff so why not play that and 
But, you know, I'm always like, wow, who does buy vinyl these days? Because I put out records that I'm like, this is amazing. This is going to sell like mad. This is what people are going to love. And it doesn't sell well. And then records that I think are super not DJ friendly do sell well. And I, then I realize, oh, it's not always DJs buying the records. It's yeah. actually like yeah, I've heard this from like I other fe- stuff. felt it myself and heard this from a lot of people running labels, just that in general, it's really, really hard to predict what people are going to... Uh, pick up on well uh i guess as predicted we've talked for a long time here (laughs) we should probably uh, think about getting back into the mix but first any um like upcoming releases or uh, events or anything that you want to shout out sure uh for la4a stuff i've got actually tomorrow um i have uh remixes that i did for my friends um in the juan mclean um, they have oh, a, cool. a single coming out on DFA, and so I have an LA4A remix and then a, you know, a dub version. So it's super loud, gnarly acid kind of remix, but it's super fun because I've known Nancy particularly since, well, I mean, since I first moved to New York. So I've, I've known her almost 20 years. She's a very good close friend, and, and Juan is also somebody who I make a lot of music with. We have a a a collaborative project that we do together that people are probably going to hopefully hear about soon um and so that comes out on friday uh later this month i have an ambivalent record uh coming out on enemy which is um dustin zahn's label all right um and that's sort of more like gritty chunky warehouse techno um with a great remix from dustin and a great remix from a guy called amotic who um a lot of people are super psyched on right now. He's doing really, really well, and he's making good, like, kind of heavy, dark techno. So so that'll come out in March. Um, I have a thing that I did with my friend Physical Therapy. We have a duo called PTA, mm-hmm. and we have an EP coming on Anthony Parasole's label, The Corner. Oh, cool. Um, Anthony would probably be better at answering when that's coming out, but I, I think, you know, in the next couple months. Um, yeah, a lot of other stuff that's maybe too soon to talk about, but probably a lot coming this year, both on Delft and on Valance, which is the label where I put out um, a lot of my ambivalent stuff, as well as a bunch of other great artists like um, Noncompliant has a record coming out uh, in next week, and uh, that's a, I'm really, really keen on that record. We just did something that was a compilation that had... Avalon Emerson and a collab between me and Matrix Man and a physical therapy track and these guys Tom Stue from Italy. So yeah, I mean, you know, all Lots the labels coming. are going going really well. We have a, a Vernon Felicity record coming on Delft uh, later in the spring, which I'm really excited about because he's done other stuff with us. And um, yeah, I'm I'm really happy with where the label's going this year. Both labels. Cool. And is the Bandcamp the best place for people to go to hear the Delft stuff? Yeah, you can do, yeah, you can hear it on SoundCloud. We have a, a SoundCloud that's uh, like Delft slash LA4A uh, SoundCloud page. Um, or you can go to, yeah, there's a Delft Records Bandcamp as well as a Valance Records Bandcamp. Um, and then I think there's also an LA4A Bandcamp that we did for, that was just for the album because I did an album last year as right. LA4A. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty of places to find the stuff on Bandcamp and, um, you know, that's always fun because it, it makes it easier to just sort of send that money direct to the artists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what keeps our label afloat for the most. Part. And we're going to start selling vinyl on Bandcamp soon. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So. That's that's how we've always done it. Um, okay. So should we get back into the mix? 
Yeah, why not? I'm just gonna kind of reboot and start playing a lot faster for the second half, if that's... Okay. Okay. Yeah, so. we've got 40 minutes left in the show. We're gonna get back into the mix with LA Foray. You're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here.
Hello, you're listening to The Mucker New York on Red Bull Radio. We've been in the mix with LA Foray. We've got about five minutes left. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Really great show, really great sets. Um, maybe we'll get a screenshot of some or something of the playlist for our Instagram. Sure. Been getting a lot of questions about what you're playing and such. Um, so we'll be back in two weeks. And stay tuned. Like I said, we've got about five minutes left here. You're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. Travel, 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 travel,